Batista Palooza is what our next guest called it over the weekend. Mm -hmm. Batista Palooza, level of excellence for one of the greatest Jays that ever did it. And a very, very uh, fitting tribute moment. And, uh, you know, the waterworks might have been there for many surprising. people in the crowd there. Yeah, there was some surprising, uh, surprising from Jose. There were sure. some tear jerking moments. And, of course, Jose was overwhelmed a few times and was prepared with the shades. Let's bring in our next <laughs> guest, our insider brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus. We're going to expect excellence, rather, online and in the showroom. Visit DonValleyNorthLexus.com. It's Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic who was there for Bautista Palooza. So what's front and center? So, you know, after a busy weekend, you wake up thinking about Monday morning. You think about what happened over the weekend, the big event. When you think about, you know, Bautista's weekend, Bautista going up to the level of excellence, what's front and, mind and, or front and center for you uh, on your mind? Um, yeah, morning, guys. I think it was just... The ceremony overall, I think, was really well done. And, um, you know, I thought the Blue Jays did a really good job of kind of being, um, you know, showing all his great moments, mentioning what he meant to the organization. Uh, I think overwhelmingly people thought it was done really well. Uh, but I think just lasting for me would just honestly, like seeing him up there being kind of emotional, I didn't expect that necessarily. I talked to some people uh, you know, prior to the ceremony, who knew Jose better than me. And, um, you know, they weren't sure that he would get em as emotional as he got. Um, they weren't sure that he would cry. Um, he obviously was like an emotional player. Um, but I think we usually saw, uh, you know, as fans and, and observers of the team, the mo emotion kind of um, spill out more as like anger or, or something <laughs> on the field. Um, but, he clearly um, was touched, uh, understandably so. Uh, it was hard not to be. Um, and actually, I was talking to some people afterwards, and, you know, what really got him was the teammate video, I think. or That's what sort of got him going, and then he didn't really recover after that. Um, but I think it's true. Like, I think, um, you know, especially on sports teams, um, you know, teammates, they know they appreciate each other, but it's not like you're constantly telling the guy next to you, like, you know, you, you mean this much to me and I was so inspired by you. Like, you don't, you don't say that. We don't say that in our real life to people that we care about necessarily every day. Right. So I think when you hear how much of an impact you meant, you know, not just to the fans and the, and the whole fan base, but to people that you spent a lot of time with to coaches and players. And um, so that's what really got him. And yeah. And I also think just watching him stand and seeing the, um, name be unveiled was kind of mm. cool too that that kind of like image i think him standing with his family will um stay with me yeah i think we were all surprised uh, to see jose with that emotion uh, on the field because you think back to his career uh, one of the things that sticks out for me is just the intensity and the ferocity and i, I asked ben ennis the same thing last hour when you think of jose bautista uh, the player what are you going to remember about his time in toronto i think it's just how um, he was always there. Like you could always kind of rely on him to come up in a big spot. And like, obviously like there's so much failure in baseball and uh, you tend to sort of just remember the moments where he came through as opposed to maybe the moments that he didn't. But I would say like people that played with him, people that know him, people that were around during that time that he was with the Blue Jays. One of the things they mentioned constantly is, you know, how he loved the big moment, how he loved to be in that spot. And actually, you know, as the, um, you know, as the lights shone brighter, uh, the more he was 
likely to come through. He didn't really shy away from the spotlight, you know, especially once he had his breakout um, season and sort of didn't look back. It was, I think he really enjoyed being the guy in Toronto and, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's a a big fan base. You know, it was a team that uh, had had its glory days, you know, in the past, but, you know, hadn't been as competitive as many people wanted it to be until 2015, 2016. But, you know, all throughout his time, he really was the face of the franchise. He was the guy. And I think he embraced that. And I think, you know, some guys don't like some guys, um, you know, don't necessarily want that. Or when they become that, maybe they, you know, can't live up to it or whatever it may be. Um, but I think it was just how much, you know, he liked being the guy here, and I think he really loved the city, and I think the city loved him back, and it was really kind of a love match between the two. Um, the city needed him, and he needed the city to kind of find a home, uh, and uh, obviously the fans really embraced him. Uh, nothing's forever, Caitlin, but do you think there's a permanence to the way he changed this franchise? Like, do you think... Not, you know, the baseball uh, landscape's different with more teams going to the playoffs every year, but it felt like expectations changed shortly after Jose Bautista came along from an individual standpoint and then a team standpoint. Like, do you think he, the way he left this team was different than the way he started uh, or he first arrived and it will always be that way because he changed something about the DNA of this organization? Well, I mean, he was just part of winning clubs and, yes, a very central focal point of those winning clubs. Um, And what we saw in that time was that, like, Toronto likes a winner. Um, You know, Toronto fans will come out if the team is really good. And we saw that in 2015, obviously, you know, that summer, um, you know, it was – just so memorable. I mean, you know, I even remember I grew up in Toronto and, you know, I was born in the early 90s. So um, the original World Series aren't really memories for me, Um, sort of grew up in the shadow of them. But I remember like um, just being on like the subway and stuff in 2015 and the number of people you would see in Blue Jays gear just like doubled, tripled, quadrupled, you know, as the team kept winning. And it's Like, I remember, you know, part of it was the Jays went back to their original um, logo or their better logo um, sort of in and around that time, too. And so people started wearing it more. But, you know, I'm sure you guys remember, too, it was like, you know, the Blue Jays became um, like a fashion statement as much as, you know, a winning team. And the city just, you know, loved them. And I think that's continued. Um, I I think that he he really embraced um, the kind of, I don't want to say like little brotherness of the Blue Jays, but I think that he had this like chip on his shoulder because of the way that he came up um, because of his own path and his own journey. And I think some of that kind of resonated with Blue Jays fans too. Um, You know, they, we obviously play in the division with, you know, two fairly giant teams, the Yankees and the Red Sox. Um, They're not so competitive now, but obviously in, in the historical sense, they've been very competitive teams. And, you know, and I think that there was a long time where it didn't seem like Toronto could win. It didn't seem like they could get over the hump, but he helped them do that. And I think that probably gave the, um, you know, the perception and the belief that, yeah, yeah, Toronto can be a really good team. Um, It can be a winner. It can spend money. It can be at the top of the division. It can draw huge crowds. Like I do think it changed. And, you know, he talked a lot about, 
um, whenever he asked about his own legacy, he really shied away from um, taking credit for that and really just said I was a one part of that team and and yeah he was a big part of the team but you know it was it was them as a group as a collective in 2015 especially in 2016 as well that really brought winning back to the city and it's kind of maintained there's obviously been bad seasons as they were kind of rebuilding but in terms of you know fandom and stuff once the team started winning back in 2021 when they came back and and through last season and this season you know the fans are coming back to the the stadium because they know toronto can be a winner Everyone had the same joke with Jose on Saturday, put him in the lineup because he signed a a one-day contract, right? Like this this iteration of the Toronto Blue Jays could certainly use the offense that Jose Bautista provided. And Caitlin, you had one sentence in your story about yesterday's game that summarized the 2023 Toronto Blue Jays perfectly. I thought you were talking about the week that was, but it also applies to the whole year. You said frustrating sequences, missed opportunities, and bad luck. Isn't it amazing how ugly it's been offensively for this team, but they're 12 games above 500 and currently in a playoff spot? Yeah. I mean, I remember even back in like May and gosh, even June and this, the runners in scoring position numbers are terrible. And you're like, you're looking at like the overall offensive numbers and you're like, yeah, but they're actually like one of the best hitting teams in baseball and they're constantly getting on base. And they're actually got a above average weighted runs created plus, and their OPS is top ten or top five in the league. Like this is going to turn at some point, and then it just hasn't. And um, you know, obviously Sunday was um, you know a good win. They were getting those key hits. You just hope that that can carry them. Um, that the momentum will you know continue. I know there's an off day today, um, but Philly's coming to town on Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, but you know, I think that. You know, on the one hand, it is surprising because I think for a long time, we've just been used to the Blue Jays being a great offensive team. Like, they've been basically, if you combine the last two seasons, they've been the best offensive team in baseball. If you look at those individual seasons, they're basically, you know, top three in all the sort of key offensive categories. They've been a great home running team, home run hitting team um, the last couple of years. Um, And so this has just been very different. And so I think. On the on the one hand, it's like a very stark contrast to like what we're used to. We're like, how is this? You know, this team isn't the offensive juggernaut that we're used to. The other thing is that we maybe didn't expect the pitching to be as good as it is. And so you talk about you know how many games above 500 they are and they're not hitting. Well, the only reason they are is because they've been pitching so well. I mean, the reason they can win because they're only scoring three runs is because they're they're not giving up many runs. And so. You know, I think that that's sort of looking at the bright side of things. It's like, okay, well, they're not the team necessarily we thought they were going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but pitching and defense, which they did, you know, try and improve coming into the season, that was something that they were aiming to do. We want to be a better defensive team. We want to be a better pitching team. Well, they've done those two things. And so you just hope in the last six weeks of the season, maybe there is some positive regression for the offense. And then you, you start to get a little bit of a run, a little bit of their best baseball coming at the right time. Kayla McGrath of The Athletic on with us. Uh, I don't know if this was intentional, but of course, Manoa option for the second time this season uh, before the level of excellence celebration. Uh, and maybe it worked if it was intentional because we barely talked about it all day today. Um, <laughs> but it is an important touchstone for the season. Uh, maybe not important as important as the first time he was optioned, but important nonetheless. 
Uh, it's pretty, you know, solidified here. I mean, Hanjin Ryu has, has come in and done a really good job, albeit, uh, you know, limited uh, appearances so far. But it seems like we know who the five-man rotation is going to be uh, for this Blue Jays team here down the stretch now that they're done the 17 and 17 and there's a little bit more break in the schedule. So for Manoa, like, what's the goal now? What's the target? What's the objective? What is he supposed to do to try to still have an impact on the season? Or are we talking about 2024 with Alec Manoa at this point? Yeah, I mean, hard to have sort of a huge impact on the season, barring something um, going wrong. Um, you know, that would be a starter going down and Manoa having to come up and, you know, say he pitches really well down the stretch. Like, then you're like, okay, he's made an impact this season or something. But, um, you know, I think just if you're just taking it on his own, I think it's going down to Buffalo and just continuing to work and stay ready. And, you know, I think his, his attitude in just speaking to him a little bit um, and seeing him after games, like his attitude has been pretty good. Um, you know, all things considered this entire season, he seems to sort of embrace the challenge when they sent him down to Florida, obviously disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. He's a really competitive guy. And the biggest thing that impacts him is that he wants to help the team win. Um, obviously you, you want personal success because he's competitive. He wants to go out there and, and compete and do a good job. Um, but mainly he wants to do a good job because he wants the team to win. And so I think that's the thing that was really eating at him this season is just not having as big of an impact this year as he was last year. But I think it's just, you know, it's got to be the command and it's got to be the pitch efficiency for me. That's the big thing that stands out. You know, last year he was pretty effective at putting guys away. He was always pitching into the sixth, the seventh, the eighth sometimes. Like this year it was like, it just wasn't happening at all. Like it was just, uh, you know, he'd get, get ahead of a batter and then all of a sudden it's three, two and he's battling and battling and battling and just long at bat, not being able to put a guy away with two strikes, um, you know, too many walks, just not the efficiency that you need. Um, and it's just tough because, you know, the Blue Jays bullpen has been really good, but they've been working a lot, all these close games. Um, and so I think that for him, it's just, it's really working on, um, that command, putting guys away, getting getting the slider in the right spot that it needs to, and and you know maybe there's not going to be a huge impact this season, and it's you know it's uh, unfortunate for him, obviously not what he wanted, but in the long run, like he's still going to be a big part of the club. He's still young, um, you know this happens. It's not like he's the first pitcher to go through this sort of level of challenge. Um, and yeah, it, it might be looking ahead a little bit. Uh, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's impossible that he's back. I, I think certainly there's avenues where he could be back a spot, start, give a guy a break, you call him up for a game or something. Maybe that happens. Um, but I don't know that we're going to see a huge impact with just the amount of time left and, and the number of struggles that he's had. So maybe it is a little bit focusing on the now trying to get yourself right, but you also looking ahead a little bit. Uh, since Manoa pitched himself out of this discussion, we've been working under the assumption that a wildcard series would feature Gosman, then Barrios, and if needed, Bassett. Uh, do you think Kikuchi has played or pitched himself into contention for one of those three spots? Oh, yeah, I do. And um, it, it would probably, and knowing the Blue Jays, um, an organization that's very thorough in terms of, uh, well, every organization is thorough at this point, but certainly the Blue Jays would very deeply dive into matchups and figure out what would be the better matchup. Obviously, if a team, you know, isn't great against left-handed 
pitching, you're going to go with Kikuchi. Um, and, you know, if the numbers show that they'd be better against a pitcher like Bassett, you know, a guy that throws a lot of different pitches probably goes with him. So I think that that, um, that decision, I think you would depend on matchups pretty heavily. Um, I think if you're just looking at like results wise, like, yeah, the second half has been great for Kikuchi, probably the best he's pitched, you know, certainly as a Blue Jay, maybe ever. I know he's had, he had some hot runs with the Mariners too, the the year he made the all-star team. And um, so certainly he's had these um, successful stretches before, but he's looked as good as he looked as a Blue Jay um, since the all-star break, pitching really well, pitching confidently, not giving up the home runs that he was earlier in the season. Um, He just looks really on a roll. And so I do think he's in that discussion for sure. um, In the sense that it would be a discussion. It would be a lengthy discussion. I think it would probably depend on the team they're matched up with. Um, but it's certainly um, very possible that we see a Kikuchi playoff start if it got there. Crazy to think that that's where we are after last year. It almost feels like Kikuchi is is found money based on what I think Blue Jays fans, almost all of them, wanted to use Kikuchi out of the rotation last year, and certainly uh, the eyebrows are raised when he was just penciled in for a rotation spot in spring training and moving forward. But speaking of found money, Justin and I were talking about this earlier, Hinjin Ryu, I think the approach many people had was that if you get anything from Hinjin Ryu this year, that is going to be a bonus. And in three starts since coming back from Tommy John surgery, Ryu has a two, five, seven ERA doing what he does best, painting corners, limiting damage and doing it all with a fastball that tops out at, uh, 91 miles an hour. How impressed have you been? Have have you been with what you've seen from Hendon Rio? Yeah, so impressed. And I really didn't know what to expect. It was hard to place expectations on what you were going to get from him. Um, but he's exceeded my expectations. He's probably exceeded a lot of people's expectations outside of his own. I'm sure that he expected he could do this, but it's tough. Like they always say with Tommy John coming back, like command can be the last thing that comes back for pitchers. And when you're Hunjin Ryu, like command is your thing. You need it. Right. Like, so, um, the fact that he's been able to just slide so seamlessly into the rotation, um, looking great out there. I think that it's a testament to him, the work that he put in. He looks great. Everybody's kind of noticed that he's definitely slimmed down. He's probably in the best shape that he's been in in a while. He really just attacked his rehab and um, worked so hard. And to make it back just in general, given the the surgery and his age and everything, is an accomplishment in his own. But the way that he's been pitching is – you know, really, really incredible. It's great to watch. It's fun to see. It's nice to see him um, just look like himself out there and, and give himself, um, you know, a better ending, at least to his Blue Jays career. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe he signs a one-year deal. Maybe it's with the Blue Jays. I don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, knowing that this is last year, the, the sort of four-year deal that he signed that was so significant for the Blue Jays at the time, it is nice that that is getting its it's nice ending. I think like we can look back on that deal and say, yeah, maybe it wasn't perfect, but it ushered in a new sort of feeling with the blue Jays. It ushered in like, okay, this is a a window that's opening here. Um, And, you know, unfortunate in the middle that you lost, um, you know, a a season basically, or, um, but the fact that you're getting, him out there helping a team as they fight for a playoff spot, I think is a really sort of nice way to wrap up that, that time with the team. 
the level of excellence, as you know, Caitlin, is a high bar. Um, is there a who's next or after Jose Bautista was scratched off the list, does the list have any names on it? Yeah, I know. That was something that was people were debating this weekend. Um, you know, I saw a little bit on Twitter and certainly there's some good names out there. Um, I saw like Jimmy Key was one that was circling um, around on Twitter Obviously, Edwin Encarnacion was here this weekend. He works with the team. He got a huge ovation. Um, and, you know, he's probably someone, uh, I don't know if they do it, but honestly, John Gibbons, man, the, the cheers that he got when he came <laughs> on, like, it was deafening. Like, yeah. I, uh, it was, um, you know, that was actually incredible. And I know he never won here, so he probably won't get on the level of excellence, um, but he was here a long time and people love him. Um, if he won a world series, I think he would have been a shoe in. I'm not sure that he'll get there now, even though he did lead those 2015, 2016 teams. Um, but <laughs> that would be fun. I mean, I'm sure the fans would love that, but yeah, I don't know. I think there's definitely some candidates that are still like on the list, but I don't know that there's anybody left that's as convincing as Jose. Um, I think he was such a shoe-in for it. Whereas I think, you know, Encarnacion, you have a conversation, but did he have as big of an impact? You know, was he, he wasn't necessarily the face. He was one of the faces. So um, yeah, it's, it's fun to debate. It's, it's interesting, but I don't know who's going to go up there next. I don't know if there is an obvious next or if it sort of requires some debate and some thinking. Yeah, it's an interesting topic because it just seems like, you know, they've done a really good job with it. Like it really does truly mean something when it's pretty selective. And I'm mm -hmm. like one of the biggest Eddie fans going. I love him, but I, I don't know if he belongs <laughs> there. I, I just, I'm just not really sure. It is nice when it's not like taken too far. And right now it hasn't been taken too far. So we'll see where they go with it next. Uh, we appreciate you coming coming on this morning is a busy weekend obviously at the ballpark so yeah getting up early for us uh, is definitely appreciated Caitlin yeah of course anytime uh, that was our insider brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom visit donvalleynorthlexus.com glad I got that out the second time <laughs> before uh before we get to the level of excellence for Edwin I think he's got to stick around in the dugout for the foreseeable future because he's in full uniform in a special advisor role yep. yesterday. And, and what happens, they put up 11 runs and that just seems like something that's going to have to continue to happen. That's a good point. Baseball superstitious, like keep him there. Although it's hard to get to the level of excellence. There are two routes, right? You can do it as a player and you can do it. There you go. As a manager or as a coach. So maybe Eddie, maybe something, uh, there's a second, <laughs> there's a second career with the blue Jays to make sure that you're put over the top. People but. have been all over Guillermo Martinez all season long and maybe Guillermo doesn't even have to lose his job you just add another person into the mix and have Eddie there and see there what go. he can do for you just he another can, voice not only the fix for you know the plate appearance we've been seeing but the, mm -hmm. the fix for the coach itself would yeah. be a good thing and maybe too much to ask of Eddie but we shall see let's hit a break because we got Jeannie Bouchard up next to talk about what we saw at the National Bank Open and maybe look ahead as the tennis season reaches, I guess it's climax with the U.S. Yep. Open. Gina Bouchard after the break on the Fan Morning Show. Breaking down the biggest stories in Toronto sports. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Horfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> it, 
If time permits, we'll do a wake and rake. So get your wake and rake submissions in now. Uh, perfect intro <laughs> I mean, to our next guest. They might, might have ruined the Cotton Eye Joe. Like, they might, they might think of that moment at the at the National Bank Open for the rest of time. Anytime I hear Cotton Eye Joe. And you will hear it again because it is the song that will not die. Song of the summer. <laughs> it will not. <laughs> it will be played in arenas until the end of time and apparently at the National Bank Open. Let's bring in our next guest, Jeannie Bouchard, pro tennis player and National Bank Open analyst on Sportsnet. We are colleagues now, which is cool. She was on the desk this weekend with Sportsnet. Good morning, Jeannie. How are we doing? Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on. So what, what's it like, you know, just, you know, I wouldn't say moonlighting, uh, but just showing up on a desk, providing analysis, balancing uh, being a professional athlete and being an analyst. Uh, what was the weekend like for you? Well, uh, firstly, I have to say it was really tough because I joked to my mom about this. I was like so tired the other day because I was training like before, like I was training during the day and then I was doing the commentary and analyst stuff at night. And I was like, mom, I feel like a single mom working two jobs right now. I'm so tired. Um, but it was great because it's like two things I absolutely love to do and to be able to do them here in Canada and Montreal and um, you know, just enjoy the whole day working. Uh, it was a blast. So you understand my plight now. Like it's so hard to work out after doing broadcast <laughs> daily. That's why I'm in the shape that I'm in. Uh, That's the excuse. <laughs> it's hard to do both. But uh, I guess uh, if you're doing both, like you are doing, uh, you gotta find a way. Uh, let We let in with Cotton Eye Joe. Uh, to uh, to this interview here. Uh, of course, Cotton Eye Joe, if you missed it, interrupted a crucial tiebreak between Jessica Pagula and Iga Sviantek. Pagula goes on to win the tournament. It might have been one of the moments of the entire tournament when Cotton Eye Joe played. So your reaction to that and what was the craziest thing that's ever happened while you've been on court? Look, this has to be up there with pretty crazy. I mean, I, that's actually never happened to me where music played in the middle of a point. I don't know if that DJ should be fired or like promoted because it was such an like crazy moment. <laughs> and then when Jesse Pagula won the finals the next day, yesterday, um, they played it again after she won. And then she was just like laughing her head off on court and was like, I can't escape this song. It's now my favorite song, of course, because she just won a 1000 title. Um, I mean, the only good DJ story I have is I played at the US Open and on center court after I won my match, the DJ played Genie in a Bottle by Christina Aguilera, <laughs> which I kind of think is like my song. And so I was just like, wow, I'm in love with you, DJ, whoever you are. You are so cool. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, you did a great job this week. Like, is there, is there a way that doing the analysis and commentary can help your game, maybe offer you a, a bit of a different perspective than you otherwise wouldn't be getting by sitting behind the desk? Completely. I first started doing it uh, two years ago with Tennis Channel in the U.S. when I uh, had shoulder surgery, and it was such a great way for me to stay involved in the sport because I was out for like a year and a half. And then when I came back, I felt like I saw the game a little bit differently, and I knew some of the players better than I had because you have to watch so much more tennis and like really like study players and their tendencies and things like that. So when I came back, I was like, oh, yeah, like I've seen her play. I know she likes to, you know, serve here, things like that. And even this week, like after a couple of days of, of hosting at night, I went on the practice court one of the next days and I was like, I swear I'm practicing better because like I've just been staring and studying at tennis for so long. 
So Jessica Pagula uh, beats Ludmila Samsonova in the final. And it was, uh, you know, it's a great win. It's a Masters 1000 win for Jessica Pagula, and it means a lot. But Samsonova was dealing with a bit of a uh, disadvantaged uh, hand. Uh, She had to play twice on Friday, played twice on Sunday. Obviously, that's not ideal. But, like, you tell us how not ideal that is. Playing twice, playing a final after playing earlier in the day, having to do it two days prior. Like, what does that mean to a tennis player and how impossible was the situation that she was dealing with? Look, it was really tough. We cannot uh, underplay how tough the scheduling was for her. Of course, it's Mother Nature and we can't control it. But it's also luck of the draw. It depends what section of the draw you're in, Mm. which depends, like, at what time you play. However, I do believe Saturday night they could have played the second semifinal. They called it off pretty early at around 8.30 p.m., and it turns out there was actually no rain for at least two hours after that. And so if I was uh, her or Rabakana, who was the other semifinalist, I would have been pretty frustrated that they moved it so early to the next day because, look, this is a 1,000 event. It's not like a small challenger. This is one level below Grand Slam. So to be asked to play a semi and a final on the same day is a huge ask because there's so much at stake. There's points, there's prize money, there's, you know, life-changing, career-changing moments potentially. And this poor girl was so fried in that final. Of course, all credit to Jesse. And I think Jesse would have won anyway, so it possibly doesn't change anything. But this girl, like, even if she played two on Friday, they were like, oh, she's, like, used to it. Like, no, it's just accumulation of tiredness, you know what I mean? And you can't just get used to that. So, uh, you know, she really did not have a chance in that final. Is there anything else that the WGA can do? Because I I know that... um Right back and I was complaining about the scheduling and how the rainfall, you know, wrecked havoc all over the tournament this week. But is there anything that the WTA or the organizers can do to avoid a situation like that? Because two matches in a single day for a tournament of this magnitude just feels like something else has to be done. Well, get a roof. (laughs) (laughs) All 1,000 should maybe be obliged to have a roof, you know, to protect the players at such a big event like you mentioned. And like I was saying... Two matches on Friday because of the rain was, like, a little bit necessary. But to have to do it again for a final, I don't think. Like, worst case, I feel like they should have moved the final to Monday if they really Mm -hmm. couldn't. Like, this is such a big event. You can't penalize the players like this, especially only one side. It it wasn't like the other semi was also on Sunday, so it was fair. They were really not playing on even playing field. Uh, I was there covering the event this week in in Toronto, and the buzz for for Carlos Alcaraz was simply incredible. Is is there someone on the WGA tour that you think deserves that level of buzz? I mean, the obvious answer would probably be uh, Iga Swiatek with how much success she's already had at her age. But for whatever reason, it doesn't seem like she gets the respect that maybe she deserves. I just think there's something special about Carlos Alcaraz, and it's it's one of those once in a generation type of players because he not only has the success but he has something more he has this like engagement with the fans he has this entertainment when he plays there's this special je ne sais quoi about him that fans just die for and you don't see that in every player even with the results there's something more it's his exciting style of play it's his personality it's his humbleness it's his you know all of it wrapped up together so he um he's just a really special unbelievable champion so what happened with Alcaraz uh, in Toronto uh, loses to Tommy Paul uh, it's a competitive match of course uh, but like 
players, especially at that level, are treating these tournaments maybe for their own uh, purposes, right? Like if he's getting ready for the U.S. Open, is he working on something in Toronto? Is he putting a full effort out there in Toronto? A little surprised that, you know, maybe we didn't see one or a couple more matches out of him in Toronto. But you can also understand that, you know, he's he's looking towards the U.S. Open as the guy who just won the last major and maybe thinking more so about Novak Djokovic and potentially meeting him uh, down the line again. Uh, what do you make of Alcaraz's tournament and and losing to Tommy Paul in the manner he did? Those are great questions, and it's something we actually talked about yesterday. Uh, a lot of the players, especially to start the hardcore season, the top players, first of all, some of them don't even play the Canadian Open. I mean, Djokovic wasn't there, right? And some of them see it more as like the first tournament to get into it. So a lot of the players are not really sharp. Of course, it's a huge tournament, but at the end of the day, the Grand Slams are bigger and the players want to peak for the Grand Slams. I also think in Carlos Alcaraz's case, there was not only that factor, but the fact he did just win Wimbledon. And there's just such a natural letdown that happens after that. And, you know, you can't peak at every single tournament every single year all season long. That's just impossible. So I I think it was just a natural letdown after winning, you know, his second Grand Slam, beating Djokovic in the finals. So he was not sharp. He was a little sluggish, a little error prone out there but um you know what he's he'll be fine and it's just the way the scheduling works let's get to the canadian side of things Uh, injuries are playing a big factor with canadian tennis lately Uh, bianca pulling out of the cincinnati open due to a stress fracture in her back we know about her struggles with her ankle earlier this year in miami felix oj eliasim been dealing with a nagging knee injury Uh, obviously denis shapovalov didn't play because of a knee injury how frustrating can it be for players with such high expectations like these canadians do have when your body just is not cooperating it's very frustrating, and it's just the life of an athlete. It's, you know, staying injury-free is, is just as important as working on your forehand or being uh, mentally strong in matches. Like, it's just one of the facets that we have to manage, and it c- can potentially be the hardest one. I mean, I know it better than anyone. I was out for a year and a half because of a shoulder surgery. So, you know, managing that is, is part of managing a career, and it's very unfortunate, of course. Bianca especially seems to have a higher number of injuries than maybe other players, and so it was really um, sad to hear that she had to pull out right away because I feel like she's such a great player, and when she gets a lot of matches, she can get on such a great role. At the same time, it was great to see Milos come back after so many years away and win high-quality matches. I mean, no one really expected that at all. So now suddenly we've created expectations for him because he was able to beat Francis Chiappo in like one of his first matches back. So that was very impressive. Yeah, it was really cool to watch. I mean, like I, I admittedly stopped thinking all that much about Milos Raonic. You know, you, there's it, it just happens. Two uh, years if you're, away. If you're yeah. gone for a while yeah. and there are others to be excited about, others to watch and track, uh, you, you it kind of, uh, you know, not erases from your memory, but you lose sort of uh, a sight on them. And him coming in obviously played at Wimbledon uh, but upsetting Tiafo as he did uh, you know what was it he's not like he got off the couch and did it but like what does it say about him and his career and what he can bring to the court that he was able to you know take on a guy who's 10th ranked in the world beat him and dominate in the ser- with his serve like he has for so many years just watching Raonic and the testament to you know his athleticism and what he is as a tennis player what he did at the National Bank Open can you give us the you know the, the context we're without uh, after watching Raonic do what he did 
Yeah, I'd first like to say that it's um, impressive because being out of the game for that long, everyone's always improving. And so as soon as you get off the treadmill, you know, everyone's still going and you're kind of losing ground. So to be able to come back and compete at such a high level is just, first of all, very impressive. But it just shows that Milos does have that ceiling. He has Mm. that um, high level of play. So even though he's in his comeback right now, he probably won't be as consistent as he was before being after the injury, being a little bit older and being just fresh on his comeback. But it just shows that the the potential for the high level is there. He obviously was three in the world finalist of Wimbledon. So it, it shows that he can achieve it. He can compete with the top players. He has the weapons for it. Of course, his serve was, you know, amazing in that match. And it shows that there's, there's that potential. So I think it's very exciting. So Yannick Sinner gets his first uh, Masters 1000 title, beating Alex Dimonor, uh first of many uh, for Sinner, because I think on the ATP Tour and WTA Tour, there's sort of uh, everyone's clamoring for a, a new generation, a new big three. Jo- Djokovic is still around, but obviously Federer retired and Nadal consistently dealing with injuries. We have the buzz of Carlos Alcaraz. Do you see Yannick Sinner as someone who can be in the mix among that next great young crop of players? For sure. I mean, I was watching his his play all week, and I think his game is so exciting. He has the weapons, and that's where I see the champions, that you need something to be able to hurt your opponent with. And this guy has a huge forehand, and it's so fun to watch as well. So I think he has a very exciting game that fans will be attracted to. And he has that level. He looks very calm as well. He has more of a subdued demeanor than Carlos Alcaraz. Um, but that could also help him because he can stay calm in the big moments and maybe not let the, the tenseness or the pressure of the moment get to him. But um, he should be. Everyone's hyping him up. But, you know, there's reason to. He should be a great champion for years to come. So what does the future hold for you, Jeannie? Of course, uh, this broadcasting thing seems to be coming pretty naturally. Uh, but, of course, uh, you, still you. Have, you still have ambitions on the court, I imagine. So, uh, like, what are, what's in the forefront of your mind? What are you striving and working towards? And uh, when are we going to see you next on the court? Yes, well, of course, uh, tennis is my, my first job, my first love, but I have very much enjoyed TV. I think it's helped me being in tennis because even from such a young age that we had to do like interviews. I mean, I did my first like photo shoot when I was 15. I was being asked about matches uh, when I was super young as well in the juniors. So just having to be in front of a camera um, from such a young age, I think has helped it be a little more natural for me um, now that when I do the TV stuff. Um, But yeah, of course, I mean, playing this week in Montreal was so great. The fans were really supportive. It almost made me like tear up on the court, how hard they were cheering for me when I was um, winning some points. Uh, But next up, uh, short term is US Open. I'm in the qualifying of that. So I'm actually going to fly to New York this afternoon and have a week of training there. And I play next week. So just excited to get right back to it. Well, best of luck in New York. Uh, we're looking forward to it. And we're looking forward to next time you're on Sportsnet because you did a great job on the weekend. So uh, Thank you. I hope I'm invited back. <laughs> I, I think you will be. I think you will be. The National Bank Open uh, probably will have uh, its doors open for you. So thanks for coming on this morning. Okay. And yeah, best of luck at the US Open. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, guys. Thanks, nice Jeannie. to talk to you. That's Jeannie Bouchard, pro tennis player, Sportsnet colleague. Lots of good stuff. She she puts you in a bit of a box there. I don't know if you, you, you're the decision maker on uh, whether she can, she can come back yeah. where she wants. You're like, I don't know. Can I guarantee it? I don't know. Tell you yeah, what, Jeannie, I'll, I'll, send you, I'll send an email out. Yeah. I'll, I'll see if there's interest. <laughs> That's so good. I love that. Uh, we do have some Wake and Rake submissions in, so let's hit one, fellas. Wake up! 
Now it's time for Wake and Rake. You could be raking in the dough with your kind of accuracy. Show me the money. With Ailish and Justin. Okay, so I'm uh, sharing a brain with the very loyal Corey from Port Hope. My wake and rake for tonight will be the Mariners' money line. I know the Jays, for the Jays' sake, we want them to lose. Corey writes, (laughs) but I think they get the win tonight in Kansas City. It will be Logan Gilbert on the bump. Brady uh, Brady Singer on the bump for uh, the Kansas City Royals. So minus 145 for the Mariners. I kind of like that price. I was leaning that way. Instead, I'll go to my plan B, which is... Framber Valdez mm. on the on the mound for Houston minus 150 in Miami. The other Wake and Rake selection uh, sent in is from Cody in St. Catharines. He likes a no run first inning between the Astros and Miami. So I guess we could parlay that up. Uh, he's been solid. Oh, they have solid starting pitching on both sides and great Nerfy records. Uh, so Framber Valdez, yeah, we're pretty, love the Nerfy. We're, we're pretty uh, 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 solid with that. So we could go that direction, but I don't know if you can parlay those two. So let's go with Cody and St. Catharines uh, and the Mariners, just as a little happiness hedge because the Mariners, they keep winning, but at least we can profit yeah, off it if they do. This is like the anti-Blue Jay uh, segment because I- I'm going with the uh, Baltimore Orioles Ooh. plus money against it's, the San Diego the ultimate Diego happiness Bonders. hedge. It is the happiness hedge. Grayson uh, Rodriguez, who had just a brutal, brutal June, settled things down a little bit in July and has been much, much better uh, in July and August than he was in June. So uh, Grayson Rodriguez on the bump for the Orioles. They are plus uh, 115. The Padres have you Darvish on the hill who's been really good and we know how talented the San Diego Padres are, but I think anytime you can get the Baltimore Orioles at plus money, uh, one of the better teams in all of Major League Baseball, that's something that uh, there's a little bit of value there, there for sure. There you go. A yeah. bit of an aggressive pick. I like it. Adds uh, a little bit of spice to the parlay. Plus 505 for the anti-Chase parlay <laughs> or good. the worst case Ontario <laughs> parlay. Mariners, Astros, and Orioles, all the teams uh, that the Blue Jays are competing with uh, for playoff spots. Uh, I don't want to do like a what we learned, but we went into the week because you were broadcasting all week at the national bank yeah. open talking about Jose Bautista and the big uh, level of excellence induction on Saturday and memories flood back. And maybe your perspective changes just a little bit, but if something like caught your eye or triggered or something from our conversation today, something from one of our conversations with our guests, when you think about this, when you tie the bow on Bautista going to the level of excellence, is there something that you're that's top of mind for you? Yeah. I just want to feel that again. Like that, that's yeah. the biggest thing. Like I was in the building for the bat flip in 2015 and I, I told you, I rewatched the seventh inning this weekend with my boys and you want to experience sports at that level again. And this city and this country gets so wrapped up in the Toronto Blue Jays when they're good, even like when they're mediocre, which is, I mean, they're 12 games above 100, but based on expectations. Meaningful Septembers yeah, are, are yeah. pretty important. <laughs> right. So yeah. we're, we're going to get down the home stretch here and it's just going to be uh, pretty exhilarating. I think, yes, there have been many a frustrating moments so far this season for the Toronto Blue Jays, but if anything, watching the memories on the, on the jumbotron of Jose, seeing the emotion uh, pouring from him, which was something that I don't think anybody expected to see. It made me want to experience winning baseball, postseason baseball again. Jay's currently in a playoff spot, and we'll see if they can hold it down. Yeah, I think it's kind of the same for me. I mean, because the perspective isn't like you don't know how you felt on Saturday when you were talking about it before Saturday, right? Yeah. And what I felt was, wow, 
it was fun. It was bigger. <laughs> yeah. It was more fun. It it felt mm-hmm. different than it feels now. What we saw in 2015, obviously we remember and you know it was different because it looked different and there was home runs and all this stuff. And it was it was a different team, mm-hmm. but it was also a different vibe and it was a different feeling about what was possible. And maybe part of this is on the heels of the trade deadline. Maybe part of this is just a team that pitches well as opposed to hits the ball out of the park with regularity like they did in 2015 and 2016. But it doesn't feel like the potential is what it was. And that is a little disheartening in this moment. And maybe it's closer to what Cleveland was in 2016 and Kansas City in 2015 Mm -hmm. where pitching did the rule the day and will have those great moments. But like my feeling watching it was like, wow, did we know how good we had it then? Yeah. And it doesn't feel like no. that right now. I mean, it's so different now. Like that team had, uh, Eddie had 39 bombs. Jose had 40. Donaldson had 41. And Vladimir Guerrero is on pace for 24. Like mm-hmm. that's what we're dealing with here. That and is Danny the Jansen's difference. what, three or four back. Right. That's the difference in offensive firepower between these two teams. So, so when you're watching them, it's going to be a different experience. But... There are many different ways to win baseball games and the Toronto Blue Jays in their current form, they can certainly get it done uh, the way they're built. The pitching is is off the charts. So buckle up, buddy. And they're busy optimizing the roster, right? Yeah. Like we saw the big move with Manoa going down, which has kind of been washed away with all the news of the weekend, but they have their five-man rotation. They've dropped from a six to a five. They've got a, a schedule that's a little lighter. I think in the next eight days, they have three off days so they can start to line things up. They can start to get their ducks in order and they can start start relying have more heavily on Yusei Kikuchi and Hunjin Ryu, which they couldn't last year and now are big parts of this team. Jordan Romano is making his way back maybe we'll see chad green soon uh trevor richards is getting back like this team is getting healthier and building towards something it's just i mean and boba coming back eventually but when this team is without pieces it does not look complete we'll see and maybe there'll be a different feeling because it's all about feelings this discussion a little different when Bo's back and Chad Green makes mm-hmm. his arrival and Trevor Richards is back and you have your closer. You don't have Jordan Hicks on the mound in a ninth inning against the Chicago Cubs. Maybe when everything comes together, it can look and little and feel a little bit more encouraging. Oh, yeah, I think if there's one word that I'm looking for in the last two weeks of August and September it would just be consistency. Like, don't get shut out once every three nights. Mm-hmm. You know, just put it together a little bit more like Ben was talking about. The pitching is giving you a chance every night out Four runs many nights is going to be enough. So don't get shut out. Don't score one run or two runs, put four or five if you can on the board and you're going to come out in the winning end more often than not. This was fun. Rubinoff, Ailish Forfar is back tomorrow. Fan morning show will roll on. We'll be back on tomorrow morning. Uh, appreciate you listening.